0: paragraph, chapter 33, 218th lesson, I was reminded. Uh, So we'll read this paragraph and then we will look at these scripture references. Uh, There are two, um, two different points made in this paragraph regarding the revelation of this great day of the last judgment, as the chapter is titled. And the first of these deals with what Scripture reveals to us as to why God has revealed this day to us. Again, it is uh, completely of of God's wisdom and His freedom as to what He has seen fit to reveal. There are many things He hasn't revealed, especially of what lies ahead, that glory that He says, um, I hasn't seen, it hasn't even entered into the heart of man. Uh, we can't even imagine the glory that will be revealed to us. And so we have cause to look carefully at the Scriptures when God does reveal something of what lies ahead as to why He has revealed that to us. There's a significance to every word of His revelation. And so we'll look at these Scripture references as to what God says His reason is for revealing this last day of judgment why should we know about this day and then the second half of this paragraph explores well what does the scripture say as to why he has left this day unknown in terms of when it will come and so we'll look at those scripture references in each in each case but first let's read the paragraph as Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin and for the greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, so will he have that day unknown to men that they may shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come and may be ever prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, Amen. So this first, this first part of the paragraph, you'll notice, um, has a twofold purpose. One applies to all men. Um, Christ would have us to be certainly persuaded that there shall be a day of judgment, both to deter all men from sin, and so no matter. Your relationship with God, whatever that may be, whether it's reconciled through Jesus Christ or estranged, still in sin, in both cases, God has made known that there is a day of judgment coming as a warning to all men. It should deter, it should put a caution upon everyone who knows that there is a God in heaven. All men should fear him, should fear that judgment, and the revelation, the reminder in God's word that there is coming a day when all men will stand before him. All men will answer for everything they do in a more godly society, in a society where uh, the truth about God is more widely taught and known. Even those who don't yet believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior in days past, uh, we saw a culture much more influenced with the truth about God and that fear of God being uh, the currency of the culture that you could invoke invoke the, the warnings of God from the Scriptures and that would give pause to everyone because they did know that there was a God in heaven even if they were not reconciled to him. And so let's look at these Scripture references. So, so there's, there's one motivation or reason given that applies to all men, this deterrence from sin. And then there's a secondary um, reason given in the Scriptures, particularly to God's children, that, that is not geared around fear of judgment, but rather comfort and consolation in the adversity. So when the wicked are oppressing and they don't heed that call to fear God, don't touch my children, you'll stand before me one day and answer to me. When they press past that warning and they do not um, allow that truth to deter them from sin, they harden their conscience, as the Scripture says. Well, then what happens? The experience of God's children is suffering. It is affliction. It is the, the dynamic of, of Cain and Abel, as John, even in his epistle, um, points back to in his day that this is what happens when men who are not at peace with God are hardened their heart to a point that no fear of God holds them back from living openly, wickedly in their lives. And so there is a second reason to God's revelation, which the scriptures will, will make plain to us, and that is the comfort of the godly in their adversity. There is a day coming, and the first thing that I should be mindful of in thinking of that is, I will answer to God for how, how I, did I fear him? Did I, did I give heed when he said in his word, do this or don't do that? How did I respond to that? Did I just dismiss that as, as of, of no concern to me? Well, I will stand before him. There will be no denying the majesty and the awesomeness of God on his throne, and I'll answer to him for that. And so that should be a reminder, a sobering reminder to all men, even God's children. And then there's this second um, aspect of the revelation of this day of judgment, that in, in undergoing difficulties, particularly persecution for righteousness' sake, Lord, you won't allow this to stand. Your word will stand. You promised blessing upon the righteous. And so this, this affliction that we are experiencing as your people, for your name's sake, for walking in your paths in a culture that at times more or less uh, opposes that, then, Lord, I am looking to that day when all wrongs will be righted and put an end to. There will be a day coming when the affliction of your children will stop. And from that moment on, it will be perfect blessing. There won't be any more sorrow, any more affliction, any more persecution, and will be delivered from sin and all of its effects and consequences. And so that is the second motivation or reason uh, for this truth being revealed, as the scriptures show us. And so the first of these is seen clearly in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3. And this, again, there is a sober call to believe God's word that these are things that are we're, we're about to tell you about something that's not yet happened, has never happened, and yet certainly will happen. Don't, don't be so foolish as to hear the word of God and say, well, God, because you've never done this, because this has never happened, I just don't believe you. I just don't believe this will happen. Don't be so foolish. And so Peter, we'll begin in verse 1, And so what is he, he pauses there and and points out two things about this scoffing that they are deliberately pushing past and overlooking. Notice what they said, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Well, what's the first glaring thing in that scoffing? This reference to the beginning. Well, what is the beginning? What is this beginning of creation? Well, it is the proof, the testament, that an almighty God spoke and the world came into being. So there is an acknowledgement that things always haven't been as they are, but only since the beginning. Well, what does that mean? That means there's a God in heaven who can bring life from nothing, bring matter from nothing. He speaks the world into existence and the second thing they overlook is, since that creation, what has happened? Have things continued as they are? As though the the witness of the history of the world is, there? if there is a God, he doesn't care. He doesn't care about wickedness. Is that the testimony of the history of the world? What does Peter point to? Um, verse 6, that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That is, the the word of God that created the world, it also created the water that we see in this world. And God used that water that he spoke into existence and by that same word, he flooded the entire world that he had created as a judgment upon sin, as a warning. There were millions and millions of, of people estimated to have lived, judging from the number of years from the creation of the world till the flood happened. And of those, eight persons survived. Eight persons. And there is a witness in all of the cultures that came out of that family of eight people, a consistent um, acknowledgement of some great flood that happened. We can imagine it made quite an impression upon those eight people. And so there is that witness that is only forgotten by deliberate unbelief. That's what Peter says in verse 5. They deliberately overlook this fact. And so that te- is a testament to the power of God's word as our creator, as the one who brought such a cataclysmic judgment in the flood in Noah's day. And in verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so one of the things that God's word reveals, what gives the gospel message so much urgency in this world is that time is marching toward a conclusion. And the conclusion is described as a day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So again, the message of God's word is a message that is given that men might repent and escape that destruction. That they might see clearly the peril of their way as a sinner rebelling against God. That they might seek forgiveness through the provision of life in his Son. And so in verse 8, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, this one fact, beloved, that with the, day, the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Now, does that mean that time is meaningless in God's sight? No. How do we know that? Well, he created time. He he instituted time and the measures of time in the very creation of this world. And he moves his plans forward in terms of time in this world. He will predict things that haven't yet happened, and then they come to pass in time. In Galatians 4, he sent forth his Son in the fullness of time. And so, uh, so some people, I think, in great confusion... Uh, have have this idea of being taught even in our own day, particularly by certain Roman Catholic theologians, that uh, God, being eternal, uh, is just totally separate from time and space and history in such a way that it it is meaningless to him. Uh, we can't um, interact with God with any meaning in terms of a timeline. Well, that's that's not what he's saying, but rather. The eternal God is willing to wait. He is willing to wait. He's not delaying. He's not forgetting. But rather, what is the description in verse 9? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so, when will this day come? These, these scoffers say, well, we've heard about it, and we've heard about it, and we're sick of it. We're just going to say, forget this. It's just not coming. We're going to live our lives the way we want to and not keep dreading this supposed day that's approaching. We've, we've heard about this for thousands of years. Well, does that mean anything to God? No, he set this day according to his wisdom, and all this delay means is he's a patient God. That there are people that he yet is seeking and will accomplish their salvation. Perhaps even from the perspective of these, certainly, many who hadn't even yet been born, yet being brought to life in Jesus Christ in the fullness of time. But he is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And so you can, you, you have a choice. You remember in our, in our chapter on faith, one of the things that faith is called upon to do is to believe the word of God. That's very early in our expression of faith. We have to believe the word of God about Jesus Christ, to believe on Jesus Christ as our Savior. And so here we have something that God's word tells us, something we can't see and verify. There's no scientific method that can that can test this. We believe this by faith because a faithful God has told us. He's the God of truth. He cannot lie. And he is the one saying... He is bringing history to a conclusion. Every day is not just a meaningless, arbitrary experience, but he is, he is purposefully moving history toward this day, a day that he says he has stored the earth up for. He is patient, but this day will come. And the day of the Lord will come like a thief, <laughs> And what does that mean, that that it will break morals in, in arriving, that it'll have some untoward purpose? No. the The point of this description is that it will come when you don't expect it, when you least expect it, perhaps. It will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And so, it's, it's similar to an analogy of, of children being left in a room. You know, if you leave children in a room, if, if they don't have an incredible work of the Holy Spirit, as soon as they feel like they're unsupervised, what, uh, what do children often do? Well, they can, you know, now you make sure this is done when I get back. And if you leave children alone and they just forget about that, oh, oh you're back. We, we thought we had more time. Well, that's going to be the experience, sadly, of those who perhaps even read a verse like this and thought, well, i probably got a little more time. And God says, don't count on it. Don't count on it. I, you need to be ready, and that's going to be something we read about again and again in the next set of scriptures uh, on this second part of the paragraph as to why he hasn't told us today so that we're always ready for him to come. We are living as those expecting him to come, welcoming. We're we're eager. We we wouldn't have to be embarrassed to say, "Oh, we thought we had more time. We better get bit. it'll be too late." And so in in verse 11, we finally come to the verse that is referenced here. <laughs> But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And so what's that first thing that we should, we should conclude? What should everyone conclude? Well, first, don't call God a liar. This is what he is saying he will do. And in light of that, what sort of people ought you to be? You, you should have your eye on this coming of the Lord, this day of judgment. And you should live a life of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now, that matter of waiting for, um, actually both of these are, are tied into, I think, two things. One, of course, what sort of life you ought to live, that your obedience is, you're, you're living your life in anticipation of, looking for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, this matter of hastening the coming of the day of God, I think could have one of two, perhaps both, um, aspects to it. It's a very interesting thing to read in the Scriptures when you've read that God has fixed the day. What does this mean? Well, we're, we're taught, as we'll see, we're taught to pray for the Lord to return. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, and does God have any regard to the prayers and the cries of His children? Well, yes, He does. And He's taught us to pray this. So one aspect that He uses to bring this day to pass is the prayers and the cries of His children calling upon Him, Lord, bring the deliverance. Please come. We, we desire to see you and be redeemed. And then this other thing of hastening the coming of the day of God that I think we could see from the scriptures is God has also not only set the day, but he has given many promises of what he will accomplish between our reading of this and that day. And he calls upon us to give our lives to bring these things to pass. He, he speaks about... The, the promise of the, the nations of the world being brought in to the people of God as, as the disciples of the Lord Jesus. We could look at Romans chapter 10 and 11 about the salvation of, of the Jews back to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and through them a blessing of the gospel reaching the entire world in a, in a way and to a degree that we've not yet seen. And so... We desire to see Jesus come. We're praying for it. We're living in light of, Lord, we would be eager to have you come today. We're we're living in such a way. We're praying for your coming, and we are doing all that we can in faithfulness and obedience to you to bring about those glorious promises of the growth of your kingdom, of, of the gospel being passed down generation to generation, of those who are outside the church hearing the gospel, and being one to the Lord Jesus by the work of your Holy Spirit. We're going to give ourselves willingly to that work of of bringing these covenant promises that you've given to fruition, to the greatest of our ability, knowing it ultimately depends on the Holy Spirit to bless it. But we're going to give ourselves willingly to all of these things that you've promised and through that, you will accomplish your promises. And through that, you will bring the day of the Lord Jesus, this day of God. And so we have that promise. It's not, it doesn't end in destruction, but that is the new beginning. God will start everything over without sin, without the possibility of sin, in the new heavens and the new earth. That's where righteousness will dwell. There won't be a, a test... Um, with that possibility of falling like Adam received in the Garden of Eden. God will, will have removed the tempter from the, from the picture, and he will not only create us without sin in our new glorified bodies, but we will have a, a heart completely closed to temptation, and we will just joyfully and freely give ourselves in obedience to God forever. And what a blessing that will be. And so what's the second conclusion Peter gives us here in verse 14? Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And so we're to be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. So we're fighting that fight against sin to the best of our ability and praying for the Holy Spirit to continue to bless that we might be sanctified and more and more increasingly delivered from this sin that we'll finally and fully be freed from on that day. And then the second thing that I think is a helpful An encouraging application is uh, be at peace you know it's it's a war it's a conflict it's strife it's trouble all of this is true and yet the the there is an end to that the victory belongs to Jesus the enemies of God will be dealt with by Jesus the the children of God will be delivered by Jesus and we have his, his word in our hand to that effect. He's promised it. And so even though, yes, there's, there's energy, there's diligence, that, that's what we just read, be diligent. It, it requires work, it requires effort, all of that. But there is a peace also, a peace that fills our hearts, that passes all understanding. In knowing, we're not working as those who, who are unsure of the outcome. We're not working as those even where the outcome fully depends upon us. We're working as those who know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. And we know that Jesus has promised to be with us and to use our efforts even though they're tainted with sin. He's promised to be with us and to bless us and to accomplish his victory and to bring all of these good things to pass. And so even in the midst of that war, We have peace, not idle peace, but a rest in our hearts that is just trusting in the Lord. Lord, we're so thankful that we can be with you because we know that we'll be protected, cared for, provided for, and ultimately victorious because of who you are. And so there's a great comfort found there for God's children. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I don't know who was skeptical we would get through all these passages today. Raise your hand. You know, I said we would get through these today, and, and Brother Tony reminded me this was the 218th lesson on the confession, so mods may, may not have been the best. <laughs> um, it's just hard to brush through this. We could, we could read these verses much quicker, but God's Word is so encouraging to us in this. In Second Corinthians chapter five, uh, we we will quickly read over these beginning verses in the chapter because we've looked at those not long ago. In verse one, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Notice there the the imagery that denotes. And conveys something that is very temporary compared to something that is much more durable and permanent. Our life, our our our, our life in this mortal form, as he'll go on in 1 Corinthians 15 to describe more fully, uh, it, it is transient, but there's something much better that awaits us that will be durable and permanent. Eternal in the heavens, in fact. In verse 2, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed. In other words, the the desire of the Christian isn't death. It isn't to just, "I, I just want out of this. I want out of this difficulty. I want out of this body that is so plagued with the consequences of sin. That's not the desire, but the desire is for the good thing that follows. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. There's that same frame of mind that peace. We, we're very encouraged. Our hearts are full of courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So that's a sobering thought. That's what we should have, again, to that first point of the confession. That should deter all men from sin. We will stand before him, and, and we will answer to him uh, for everything. And so verse 11, What? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. And so again, that that sobering truth that will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that should be a deterrent in our lives from that careless attitude towards sin that is natural to us. Let's turn then to 2 Thessalonians 1. And we're directed to verses 5 through 7. He is has greeted them with peace and grace. <clears throat> he has encouraged them that the apostles are giving thanks for, for the work of God in them, that their faith is growing abundantly, and the love of each one of you is increasing for one another. And in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness, and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. So again, what what is that acknowledging? These Thessalonians are having a hard time. You can read Acts um, chapter um, 16 and 17, and you'll see the, the work of Paul there was not just met with a parade, these, these were difficult places to come to faith in Jesus. And so Paul's encouraging them. Uh, he's, he's saying, we, we're boasting about you. What, to, to boast in men? No, to boast in the, the grace of God, the strength of God. Look at how God has planted his church in such a place and is keeping them, even though under great fire of affliction and persecution. And so in verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. What does is, what is Paul argue there? Well, he says that the fact that God's children are suffering persecution is, is a proof or an evidence of something. What is it a testament to? There is coming a day of judgment. Because God is just. He will not allow the wicked to prosper and his children to be afflicted and persecuted. That will be answered for in the judgment, the righteous judgment of God. In verse 6, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant you relief who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And so even though it's a sobering day, even for God's children to consider, that that should motivate us on, Lord Help me to live today, to make a choice right now as though you are here watching me because one day I'll stand before you and you will ask me to answer for this decision, this action, this choice in each moment. But there is also the predominant, the predominant attitude of the believer is not just the, the sober reminder of, of God's Uh, righteous judgment, but that this is a day of relief. It's a day of consolation and deliverance for the child of God. The greater consolation of the godly in their adversity, as our confession puts it. Let's turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21. And verse 35 and 36 and and here Jesus is teaching about the judgment of God that is coming and he he's speaking about really uh, a a historical experience of that for the the people of Israel who had rejected him but also it's an occasion for showing that's just a little taste of a much Broader, more encompassing judgment that will involve the whole world, and in in verse, um, well, verse twenty five. Um, I want you to see how even even in that historical um, judgment. What, what was the judgment upon the enemies of God accomplishing? It was accomplishing the relief and the comfort of God's people, even in that historical setting. And so look at verse 25 first. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice verse 28. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So that's what that day spells for the children of God. Look also in um, verse 34 and following. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the son of man and every day he was teaching in the temple but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called all of it and early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now, we'll see another reference to this, this language of stay awake at all times. And certainly, Jesus didn't intend that to be taken in just a literal, physical wakefulness. You know, your, your job is to never sleep. That's not, that's not true. It's been 2,000 almost years since these words were spoken. Um, but rather it is a mental attitude. It is a, a posture of life that is, and it is awake to the truth that Jesus is returning, uh, that we're awake to that, not slumbering in, in uh, forgetfulness, and that we are praying to him for the deliverance that we must have if we're to escape from all those things that are going to take place and so it is it is a mindfulness of these truths that Jesus is revealing let's look lastly we'll close in Re- revelation verse or chapter 22 the very end of the scriptures what what is what is what does the bible end with in verse I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. And so that is the attitude, uh, the prayer that we are encouraged to pray and to live in. And so let's close with a word of prayer uh, together. Our Father, we give you thanks for revealing these truths which both soberly remind us of our calling to be diligent, be found without spot or blemish, in holiness and righteousness, living our lives as those who will give an account to you. And also, Lord, with the comfort and the joy and the anticipation of your return, bringing about the the conclusion of your gracious work of redemption to deliver the entire world, the universe, from the scourge of sin and all its consequences. And we will enter into the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. Lord, we long for that. We long to see you. We long to enter into your presence and to enjoy the smile of your your favor upon us. Lord, we thank you that you are with us even now, and by your Holy Spirit, you are comforting us and helping us toward that day. Please help us to live more in light of it, And we do thank you for revealing these things to us that we might have both the warning and the encouragement that your word provides to us. Bless us now as we gather with the rest of your people in this place to worship you. May our hearts be true in our faith before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.